welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have hitherto been overlooked. So we're going to investigate, research and explore them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And we're here today to bring you some more wonderful bits of Australiana that we've been researching and investigating to put them in front of you for your delectation. Stephen, what have you got first up? I've been looking at superheroes. We've all been watching superhero movies lately and I started to wonder, where are all the Australian superheroes? Why haven't we got someone we can look up to? So I did a bit of digging around and I came up with Australia's own superhero. His name is George O'Lean. Now, he's remembered for a few things, but he first came to the attention of the law when he overheard the term battery hen put two and two together and came up with a cruelty to animals charge. He wasn't able to pay his fine, so it was decided that he'd work off his sentence by clearing out the pig enclosure at the RSPCA headquarters. At the time, he said that the experience left him a changed man, that he'd learnt a lot from his time with the pigs and he went on to become a voice for them. Such was the the impact of this experience on the young George. He decided to dedicate his life to improving the lot of pigs everywhere. In his role as the pork warrior, Olean cut an imposing figure. His landlady, Maud Screens, made him a costume and solemnly swore never to divulge his secret identity apart from telling the ladies down at the bingo. And so was born the pork warrior, the pink avenger, pork buster, super swine, the pig with a thousand names. Well, four, but you, you get what I mean. Pork farmers around the country still tremble at the sound of his blood-curdling cry. Other pork farmers actually utilised his blood-curdling cry and went into the production of black puddings, a northern English delicacy made from pig's blood, wheat germ and whatever else was left over from the pig, I guess. There are still tales told of the pork warrior suddenly swinging into action with his little tail twitching and his hairy ears sticking straight up. The only way to stop the charge of the enraged pig man Actually, that's another name on top of it, so it's up to five. Anyway, the only way to stop him was to show him a trough full of swill. How did he do it? How was he able to curtail the pig-oppressive practices of pork people? Well, he had one distinct advantage. As we know, superheroes have superpowers. Where Spider-Man has his spider sense, the pork warrior had pig ignorance. He just did not know how stupid it was to try and free a bunch of pigs from a well-guarded pig farm. Nobody knows how many pigs were liberated by this freedom-fighting pink crusader, but it's thought to be in the 20s. His crime-busting run came to an end when he met his nemesis, Bacon Boy, who was sponsored by the Butchers Association. The final fight between Bacon Boy and the Pork Warrior was said to have lasted for hours. It's not known if either of the superheroes survived the battle. They were last seen plummeting off the Ridgeback Falls, just up the road from Jay Jones and Sons Pork Supplies. Now, some people say that the Warrior isn't really dead. And when the moon is full, he can still be heard, grunting his message of freedom and bigger troughs for all. We have the Maud Scrins to thank. The, the true identity of the pork warrior only came to light after she um, told sold her story some two minutes after having told the truth of the matter by Olean at the very start of his crusading career. 
Now, that's a revelation, Stephen, a typical bit of Australia's past that's never seen the light of day until your extensive efforts. I know, and what I want to know is, Michael, where are the comics for the kids? More than that, Stephen, where are the movies? Where is the movie franchise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, mean, I, can, see, I can see the Pork Warrior you know, rivalling all the Marvel heroes or DC heroes, plus, you know, he's one of us. He's an Aussie. Homegrown hero. I, I can see it now. Uh, Russell Crowe, somebody, somebody surely could take this on. And Chris Hemsworth, he is a pig warrior if I've ever seen one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is just screaming franchise. And now, Michael, I understand you've been delving into the art world for your latest project. That's right, Stephen. I'm looking not not a, not a single person. I'm looking at what we might call a movement. And this is the opening of the Alarmist exhibition in 1926. So that year saw one of the greatest forgotten events in the history of Australian art, the opening of the first Alarmist exhibition. The Alarmists were a small but influential group of young Melbourne artists. They felt, unusually for young artists, that they had a need to reject the work of those that came before them and to extend the boundaries of what art was and what it meant. The fact that this rejection and redefinition had been done a hundred times before meant nothing to them. They had a calling. Humbert, Carter, Hortense McTeer and Michael Banks formed the core of this group and together they created the central tenet of their movement. Art is not meant to soothe or delight or calm, it's meant to alarm. Taking this rather too literally, Carter, McTeer and Banks agreed to assemble a collection of paintings and exhibit them together to shock the art world. The result was two dozen works of scary art. Drawing on their own childhoods, the alarmists created works full of ghosts, spooky monsters and vampires. While technically competent, the subject matter meant the paintings tended to look like the covers of penny dreadful magazines. Once the paintings were assembled, McTeer was not happy. She felt that their movement was bound for misunderstanding and derision. She proposed a solution. When the exhibition opened at the small but prestigious Colander Gallery in Flinders Street, Carter, McTeer and Banks greeted all the guests personally. As they did, they insisted that all viewing was to be done while seated in order to appreciate the impact of the experience. Accustomed to such eccentricities from other groundbreaking exhibition openings, the guests agreed. Within ten minutes... Angry patrons were streaming from the exhibition, threatening bad reviews and even legal action. This was because, fearing a lukewarm reaction to their work, McTeer had convinced Carter and Banks to embark on what some might call a lunatic scheme. Working all night, they had inserted electrical wiring into all the seats of the gallery and connected the wires up to a transformer. Then, once the patrons were seated, McTeer administered electrical shocks to the nether regions of some of Melbourne's most respected critics, artists and journalists. Uh, the result was the alarmists never exhibited again. Now, this, um, this seems to predate... Does this predate the use of electric shocks in, in horror movies in America? Yeah, it certainly did. These people were pioneers of a technique that would uh, later on be reviled everywhere. 
Right. And what happened to Carter and Banks in particular? They, they, they seem to have been sort of lesser lights in the, uh, in the whole affair. Yeah, Hortense McTeer was the, was the real ringleader, if you like. They actually went on to form a wrestling duo and went to America under the name of the Kangaroo Kids. And over there, they, they became the early proto-villains, if you like. But they had a habit of singing Australian bush ballads while uh, stomping on their foes, which endeared them to some sections of the community. It's amazing how um, how some people who are who are involved in in, in these in, incredible escapades that we're uncovering, or places, or, or events, seem to to go on and, and appear in other events elsewhere, and and, be, and, and have almost have a, a second claim to fame. They're multi skilled. They're polymaths in many ways, which is another reason why these people don't deserve to be forgotten. They deserve to be held up as examples of what a person can do. Absolutely, Michael. Well done. Thank you for that. Stephen, you've got something a little bit different for us next. That's right, Michael. We look at events, we look at people, but we also look at places. And one of the places I want to look at today is a small township called Poxy. Poxy nestles at the base of the Beneventi slag heaps in central New South Wales. It's home to some 300 people who are all fiercely proud of their little community and who take great delight in telling all and sundry about the benefits of the town. This generally doesn't take long, but they do like to do it. The miniature metropolis has a bank, a football club and a baker and general goods store that supplies the locale with all that it needs. The casual visitor might say, oh great, it has a bank and a baker, whoop-dee-doo. And they might dismiss Poxy as just another country town, but they would be wrong to do so. The interesting thing about Poxy is that although the population numbers are mere 300 people, the landowner-based electoral roll boasts some 4,000 people. Poxy Mayor Eddie Bentonville explains, and I quote, The thing about Poxy is that it's a go-ahead type of town. We weren't content to sit around and let the world pass us by, so we did something about it, end quote. Mayor Bentonville's remarks about the world passing by are a little more revealing than they seem. Just behind the picturesque little town, a huge slag heap looms menacingly over the, the shops and houses. This mass of tailings, slag, rocks and sifted earth is very unstable. Apparently every time a new phase of mining begins at the mineral mines just behind Poxy, the resultant disturbances cause huge slag shifts. The inhabitants of Poxy could quite literally sit in their homes and watch tonnes of earth and tailings from the mines slide slowly past. The observant visitor would notice that each house has a vacant block on either side. This was initially to allow the slow-moving slag an outlet. However, the councillors of Poxy hit upon the idea of blocking the huge pits that lay on the southern side of the town. This then forced the slag to settle in the town. Wiseheads pointed out that the town would soon be buried, so the entire community was placed upon adjustable poles. The resulting glut of land was divided up into residential and industrial blocks and sold to investors. Land values in Poxy fluctuate simply because the amount of land fluctuates. The fact that most of these new blocks are vertical is offset somewhat by the generously discounted rates applied to them by the council. Now, Poxy is the fastest growing town in Australia and is the only regional town that is growing upwards. It's also the only town that boasts high-rise land as opposed to high-rise developments. This has also led to the introduction of many unique sporting events in the town. Vertical tennis is played by two people. 
One stands on the ground and the other is suspended at the other end of the court on a bungee rope. Team sports include one-way soccer, where players drop balls and attempt to get them into the goal protected by just one opposing player. Athletics are also very popular and Poxy is famed for having the most vertical drop long jump records in the world. Sadly, all of the record holders are deceased, but that does not detract from their achievements. Poxy, Australia's steepest town. Another gem you've uncovered there, Steve. Were you telling me that you've actually visited Poxy? Yes, yes. Um, we passed through Poxy on our way to uh, to Sydney one time. It was, it was, to tell you the truth, I was a little bit intrigued by the name because it conjures up all sorts of negative thoughts. Now we went there and, and it's, just, it's a fascinating but tiring place to walk around. Mm. And it is the very antithesis of a, a level playing field. Absolutely. And it, it, it actually nearly really took off in, in terms of a central hub for what was um, introduced as snakes and ladders, real life snakes and ladders. And, and the only reason that didn't really catch on with the rest of the world is they, they made the big mistake of using real snakes. Uh, yeah, that, that is a bit of a backhander there. But it's a great place to visit. <laughs> but you wouldn't want to live there? Wouldn't want to live there. Now, Michael, I understand you've been researching someone um, who comes from our old standing ground around Melbourne. Indeed, Stephen. I'm looking at Sarah McTeely, also known as Red Sarah, who was born in 1942. She goes down in history as Australia's only known female pirate. In addition, she's the only known pirate to operate solely within the confines of Victoria's Port Phillip Bay. Self-styled as the terror of pleasure craft and the scourge of the half-cabin cruiser, her reign of pillaging and mayhem lasted for three bloody years, 1973 to 1976. Sarah McTilly's childhood and youth are shrouded in half-truths, mysteries and downright lies. In some of her many media interviews, she claimed variously to be the daughter of bankrupt American film stars exiled Russian aristocrats and disenfranchised Trappist monks. Her birthplace is reported to be New Zealand, Hong Kong, Upper Volta and or Glebe, Sydney. Red Sarah's maritime exploits began with the mysterious nighttime capture and burning of four rowing boats near the beachside suburb of Beau Morris. Police were baffled until the previously unknown Sarah McTeely claimed responsibility. It was the beginning of three years of hair's breadth escapes, daring do, and numerous print and electronic interviews. Meeting with a reporter from the Melbourne Sun, Sarah McTeely, described as over six feet of pure woman, with stunning Titian curls tumbling to her shoulders. Uh, the reporter was later seen in the company of a tall red-haired woman at several city nightclubs, discotheques, and ship's chandlers. She promised to wreak havoc on the waterways of Melbourne because of her connections with the French royal family and the frosty reception the French explorer La Perouse received when he entered Port Phillip Bay. When it was pointed out that the city of Melbourne did not exist when La Perouse entered the area, she stormed off in a huff, mounting a white charger and galloping down the main street of Port Melbourne. Over the next few months, reports surfaced of fishing trips disrupted by boarding crews of cutlass-wielding outlaws, pleasure cruisers being rammed by trim brigantines and beach picnickers being captured and tied up while large chests were buried underneath their beach blankets. Strangely, though, witnesses to these events were hard to find. 
Details came to the media in the form of press releases, complete with photographs. In another odd aspect to the story, some of the figures in the photos were thought to be local actors. However, soon after this was alluded to in the papers, a sensational press release landed on the desk of the crime writer for The Truth. Alleging a high-level cover-up, the document outlined events apparently some months previous where a beachside picnic for out-of-work actors was horribly attacked by pirates, with all 23 actors being dragged off in chains. The press release concluded that the actors were no doubt coerced into joining the pirate crew under threat of death. Soon, all maritime activity on the bay was paralysed. Waterside workers banded together for fear of being shanghaied. Oil tankers employed extra security staff. This reign of terror ended suddenly when Sarah McTeely was arrested at her office in St Kilda. She was convicted of issuing false and misleading statements, impersonating a pirate and creating a reign of terror without being elected. She was granted bail and immediately fled the country. At the same time, several actors went on extended tours overseas, while others mounted an elaborate production of Peter Pan. It's rumoured that Sarah McTeely is currently living in a large forest in the United Kingdom, on the run from local police for stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Ah, interesting. Now, I can remember growing up in a bayside suburb and hearing rumours of piracy on the high seas of Port Phillip Bay. Well, actually, the, the medium to low seas of Port Phillip Bay is probably more accurate. And I remember visiting the beach and there being scores of children digging holes in the sand looking for buried treasure and people breaking their ankles as they walked along the beach. It was heady times. It was great, great stuff. I'm not going to say that uh, Sarah McTeely sensed this sort of zeitgeist and endeavoured to make the most of it for some form of self-aggrandizement, but it's sounding a lot like it. It is, isn't it, Michael? Yes. Sarah McTeely, Red Sarah. Wherever you are, Sarah... The best to you. And Stephen, now it's time to have a look at another figure from Australia's past. And this is one, I'm so glad you've uncovered this this poor, overlooked, but deserving figure. Overlooked is right, Michael. Um, I I think more could be made of the life of of, uh, Ronald James Lardner. He was born in the Wimmera region of Victoria in uh, 1922. The Wimmera is a, a flat, dry area noted for its wheat crops and annual fro- frog swap meet. And from an early age, Ron displayed the inquiring mind that would later play such a large part in his chosen career. Locals recall that the young Ron was always measuring things. Trees, blades of grass, cars. He always wanted to know how big a thing was, what it weighed, how many there were. This seemed to be an innocent enough pursuit until young Ron discovered girls and the fact that they came in different sizes. After a few brushes with the law and the confiscation of the measuring tape, Ron soon settled down to a life of cataloguing the local flora and fauna for the Department of Lands. Ron's staff reports at the time record that he was diligent in his work and that he was regarded by other staff as extremely keen. Ron took to cataloguing like a duck to water. In fact, Ron could tell you what type of duck, how much it weighed, the average length, width and weight of its feathers, what type of water it would prefer and how long it would take to get there from any given point in the state. His co-workers soon became concerned for his mental welfare and, sick of the amount of work he generated, they persuaded him to leave the Lands Department. As soon as he was released from hospital, 
Ron hit upon the idea of creating a book that would tell all about weights and measures. Thus was born the Lardner Book of Records. Undeterred by tales of the existence of the Guinness Book of Records, Ron said his would be bigger, wider and heavier, Ron set about entering every known fact about the Wimmera district into his records. It was while standing beside the Wimmera River, see page 9984 of the Larder Book of Records, for details regarding length, width and volume of water, depth, colour, number of left-hand bends, number of right-hand bends, number of trees situated besides, etc., that he thought to himself, I must have stood in this spot hundreds of times. Inspired, he looked up his records and discovered that he had in fact visited the site 456 times, a record. It was at this time that Ron's book of records became a little Lardner-centric. The entries from this point on include the number of people named Ron Lardner living in the district, one, the number of times Ron Lardner was written the preceding sentence, one, the number of times Ron Lardner has lost his wallet, two, record height attained by Ron Lardner, five foot eleven, record weight attained by Ron Lardner, twelve stone, etc. And that's how the records, the books just continued. Ron now lives in the Golden Twilight Years Detention Centre. His periodic shouts of chalk up another one to Ronnie Lardner usually indicate to the staff he has managed to draw another breath. Well, well, well. The, the Lardner Book of Records. Stephen, some people might look at that and think that reduplication, doing something that's been done before, someone else has been famous for, they would think it's pointless. But I see it as a form of genius. Well, that's right. And and I think really the Guinness Book of Records just doesn't have that Ron Lardner slant to it. More Lardner is better. You can't have too much Lardner. And I understand you've got another winner for us, Michael. Yeah, I'm so proud to be able to bring this one to you. Another in the overlooked category, hidden, covered up, who knows. This is a scandal. And who doesn't love a juicy scandal? So let's dive headlong into the Tate-Sleamington scandal of 1897. Some scandals bring down governments. Some scandals ruin families. Some scandals bring about far-reaching changes in society. But other scandals seem contrived solely to cause mirth in the wider community and sell lots of newspapers. Such was the case with the Tate-Sleamington scandal of 1897. In that year, Herman Tate was a 54-year-old prominent Sydney banker, much given to moral rectitude and cold baths. His wife, Ida, nay Ida Hilversham, died suddenly in April after eating a pound of pickled walnuts, greatly distressing the childless Herman Tate. Within days of his wife's funeral, he'd taken up with a spiritualist and free thinker called Daisy Sleamington. With her encouragement, he began to read. Even more dangerously, she urged him to start thinking again. After years of banking, this, unsurprisingly, proved difficult for the brain-inert Tate. But after a few weeks he found that he'd not totally forgotten how to do it. The results were profound. On 2nd of May 1897, Herman Tate and Ida Sleamington were in the parlour of the Tate residence. Suddenly, Herman Tate stood up, abandoning his green leather Chesterfield. With Ida Sleamington watching apprehensively, Herman Tate took two steps to the centre of the room and began speaking. After a few minutes of oratory, Ida Sleamington began to take notes. What came from this extraordinary performance was the Tate 
Manifesto, a schema for the total overhaul of Western society. The Taste Manifesto summarily disposed of most of the morals, religious thought, laws and preconceptions of society, but Herman Tate was simply unable to discard his 50 years of conservative middle-class upbringing. Every iconoclastic idea in the manifesto was accompanied by practical ideas for avoiding offending of sensibilities. The result was a social reform movement unlike any other. For instance, the Tate Manifesto totally rejected Western society's prudery, especially when it came to the human body. Therefore, Tate declared that his would be the first entirely nude bank in Australia. Every one of his staff would be utterly naked while on the job and encouraged to continue the practice after working hours. But to avoid offence, the nudity would be exhibited only underneath ordinary clothes. The absurdity of this situation was not lost on the public or the press. Undeterred, Tate vowed that he would invite Ida Sleemington to live with him without the formality of marriage. But in case anyone was upset by this, he thoughtfully took out a marriage licence to cover the situation. His rationale was simple. I care not a fig for the institutions of law and morality, he wrote. Therefore, it matters not that I conform to them in outward appearances. This brilliant example of 19th century doublethink made Tate and Sleemington the laughing stock of Sydney. Undeterred, they continued to promulgate their beliefs with a series of public demonstrations. In Centennial Park, they gave away thousands of pounds of the bank's money, but only to armed employees who were contractually obligated to give it right back. On a soapbox in George Street, they took turns in blaspheming by reading the Bible and inserting obscenities, except that they substituted the words holy and laudable for the intended obscenities in order to make their point. They made a show of disrupting Parliament by sitting quietly in the gallery and interrupting proceedings solely by thinking loudly. The Tate-Sleamington scandal died out quickly when Herman Tate realised that people weren't laughing with them, they were laughing at them. Mightily offended by his inability to cause offence, he burned the only copy of the Tate Manifesto and turned his attentions to gardening. Ida Sleamington left him two months later and founded a moderately successful artists and models community in the Blue Mountains. Now, Michael, some people sort of, I think, overuse the word inspired, but I think it applies here. To Tate and Sleamington, they were inspired. They were inspired, they were committed, they had the courage of their beliefs, uh, to some extent anyway. And and that's something you just don't see enough these days, I think. People people with the courage of their own beliefs who are willing to stand up and espouse those beliefs in a way that doesn't really offend anybody. Without fear or favour, except if it was going to embarrass or annoy people. Extraordinary mm. people. They, they had the best intentions, uh, but they were very silly intentions. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia. 
coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.